Why has Canada decided to halt the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in people under the age of 55? Germany gets a new manual on how to ensure that the journalists who produce the news are as diverse as the audiences that consume it, and the roller coaster ride of reopening theme parks during a pandemic. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 30th of March and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and joining us today from Milan is Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe editor at large and from London, Monocle 24's Daniel Bach. Daniel, Ed, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Ed, how's the week uh, shaping up for you there in Milan so far? Another busy one, I bet. Another busy day indeed. It's been uh, gorgeous today. It's been summer-like. I've been sort of rather enviously during the course of the day looking out the window at the sunshine as I've been um, as I've been writing an article for the next issue of the magazine about the pet care industry. That is the big scoop, if you'll excuse the pun. I've been waiting all day to, to say that. Um, I, I won't give any more details, but I really just wanted to sort of be on the balcony lapping up the rays. But obviously, um, I'm far too dedicated a journalist to do that. And obviously, I needed to prepare uh, for this show as well. So absolutely no possibility of that. I've been looking outside longingly as well at the beautiful sunshine today, but uh, a little bit of uh, email whack-a-mole as ever today, uh, trying to get things in place for uh, the globalists and for the entrepreneurs. Very exciting episode coming out uh, this week, looking at a gentleman uh, originally from Sierra Leone who's uh, worked his way through the footwear industry and and, uh, will now be designing the uh, Olympic kit for the... uh, for the national team there. Really interesting uh, backstory on his journey to London. We'll, we'll dig into that tomorrow on The Entrepreneurs and uh, lots happening on The Globalist as ever. Uh, very busy news week, as you know, Tomas. And from email whack-a-mole, Daniel, to a very literal, traditional form of whack-a-mole as we discuss the joy of amusement parks before the end of the programme. Daniel Bage and Ed Stocker, it's great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today's programme here in Canada, where yesterday it became the latest country to raise concerns over the safety of the Oxford-AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine. Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunisation recommended that provinces halt giving the vaccine to people under the age of 55. That is in contrast to previous moves by other countries to temporarily halt its use because it was on those occasions deemed unsafe to use in people over the age of 65. Well, the World Health Organization and the European Union itself has since pronounced the AstraZeneca vaccine safe for use in all adults. So Daniel, to start with you, what's going on here in Canada? The the vaccine rollout, to put this in a little bit of context, has been extremely slow here, I think it's fair to say, for a variety of reasons, despite Canada being well ahead of many other countries last year in terms of pre-ordering a pretty diverse array of vaccines per head of the population before any of those uh, treatments had been approved for use. So the administration of vaccines hasn't gone particularly well, and now we're getting an increasing number of voices stating that a third wave of infections is already underway here, and that further lockdowns are now essentially inevitable. 
Yeah, the timing couldn't be worse, Tomas. I think, uh, you know, I, I was looking just at the, the front page of the, the CBC's website earlier, and uh, the, the headlines are are horrific. I think uh, Ontario surpassed uh, 2,000 cases reported to, or confirmed cases uh, yesterday. Ottawa is seeing its uh, highest uh, or second highest day of infections in this entire pandemic. And at the same time, as you say, there is now more questions about AstraZeneca. Uh, we talked, I think, uh, on this show previously just about the vaccine hesitancy that's been created in Canada, watching uh, the rest of the world struggle with this vaccine. A lot of people were uh, already very hesitant. And uh, earlier I was listening to uh, uh, the CBC's uh, health and science correspondent, their head doctor, uh, saying, well, why the heck would you suspend this now at a time when uh, the, the pandemic is, is peaking again? It seems Canada and uh, a number of the provinces want a further study into this vaccine. They want to do their own due diligence, Tomas. Uh, we've already seen, you know, a number of countries in Europe backtrack on AstraZeneca, on suspending the use of that vaccine. But it, it appears now that uh, the provincial authorities uh, and Canada want to take a closer look at this over the issue of blood clots. So uh, suspending the use uh, in a number of places for people. But uh, it seems, as I say, quite an interesting timing when uh, the rollout has just been uh, struggling right across the country. I've, I've really noticed um, uh, some anger from people in social media, in the media in general, and just in talking to friends and family about the fact that they have no idea what is going on. It's good to see that, uh, uh, you know, a province like Ontario, the biggest in the country, surpassed 2 million uh, vaccinations now, which is, a, which is a very good number, but still only a fraction of the population, of course. Uh, it's it's you know good on, on in some corners that they have uh, focused on more vulnerable communities, seeing uh, lots of vaccine rollouts and calls for people in First Nations and Indigenous communities who might be at more risk. So that is very good. Uh, but in general, uh, people just have no idea what it, what is going on. At first, it was delays in shipments from Pfizer and Moderna, and now a suspension of the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in a number of provinces has really just slowed things down again, as you pointed out, perhaps at the worst time. And Ed, if we move our attention to the United States, where the vaccine rollout is going particularly well, broadly speaking, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday said that the US was positioning itself to lead and to fund the vaccination campaign in countries around the world. He was speaking at a virtual gathering of the UN yesterday. What did you make of, of this vow to sort of lead the way in making sure that all countries have access uh, to the coronavirus vaccine in the months to come? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. It's, uh, you know, very much part of this new administration of Joe Biden. We've seen such a turnaround from when Donald Trump was president. And, you know, Blinken is uh, someone who engages with the international community. He is an internationalist. He spent time uh, growing up in France, speaks fluent French. Uh, we know these things about him. And we know that, you know, Biden has set these very ambitious goals to have all adults uh, vaccinated in the US by the 4th of July, Independence Day. So we know that. We also know that, you know, as of yesterday, we heard it a little bit more about uh, what the US was planning to do. And instead of sort of this 
I guess, uh, sort of more uh, isolationist stance from Trump, where it was more about sort of getting as many uh, vaccines as he could get on his hands. Remember him trying to strike a deal with a German pharmaceutical company. Um, Instead of that, it's really uh, engaging with the world. So we know that AstraZeneca that's yet to be uh, approved in the US, uh, those vaccines that the US possesses are destined for Canada and Mexico. We also know that the US is uh, committing 4 billion US dollars uh, to COVAX, which of course is the UN initiative to get vaccinations to the developing world. Uh, And they're also facilitating production of vaccines, uh, licensed vaccines in India, where, of course, uh, uh, the production is a lot cheaper uh, and provides more affordable healthcare to, again, uh, developing nations. So all good news. And actually, beyond these developing countries, we also know uh, in another virtual uh, forum, not so long ago between the EU, um, EU nations talking about the the rollout of the vaccinations, Joe Biden joined in the evening. Uh, That was last week. And, uh, you know, he said that uh, he would also be in, in a position to, to, to help the EU should it ne- need it post July the 4th. We know, obviously, that there's been all sorts of supply issues uh, with AstraZeneca and even Pfizer in the European Union. So it, it looks like this this idea of the US as this sort of global saviour riding to the help of nations around the world. And obviously, we know there's been disparities between the sort of rich global north and the global south. So if the US can sort of return some equity and really help out developing developing countries uh, that would be an excellent thing thomas well next here on the late edition a new manual has been published in germany to facilitate greater diversity among the staff of the country's newsrooms and on today's edition of the globalist we spoke to the journalist and editor tembi wolf who co-authored the manual on why it was required for many of germany's newsrooms We saw in the recent study that we did that a lot of newsrooms, they know that that's a problem. So they have seen that diversity should be an issue that should be addressed in the future. So there's a will to change that, but they don't really know the way to do that. So that's why where we came in to help. Tembi Wolf there on a new manual to improve diversity in Germany's newsrooms. Uh, Daniel, here in Canada last year, conversations also began about why a newsroom that isn't diverse, that doesn't include a variety of viewpoints or experiences, isn't then probably going to commission or publish or broadcast stories that are genuinely a reflection of the society the newsroom in question is tasked with giving a voice to, and is, so the argument goes, then a part of the problem of a systematically biased society rather than being able to objectively and clearly shine a light on those biases in whatever form they happen to take. Yeah, I think absolutely. And it's it's definitely interesting to look at this from uh, a Canadian perspective where the country does pride itself on being quite multicultural. But of course, a lot of these uh, debates continue because, you know, the, the media isn't always the most reflective of that diversity. Having worked in Toronto for a number of years, if we take broadcast journalism, for example, there is an incredible diversity represented in the people you're seeing and hearing on air. But if you maybe peel the layers back and and look behind the scenes, 
perhaps, you know, that isn't always the case up the chain uh, from editors to managers and producers and things like that. So it's a matter of more people getting inspired to, to work in these roles and, and to, to get in there. But, you know, is there a need to have uh, an actual mandate or a process to, to think about that? And I think that's definitely a good idea because, you know, there are biases that are just ingrained and built in. And, you know, I always think about the relationship sort of between editor and reporter or between, you know, producer and, and broadcast journalist. And a lot of the time, you know, I was thinking this when I was watching Joe Biden's uh, excellent press uh, conferences performance last week in the United States south of the border. Uh, the questions were quite bad, but I was thinking about those instances where, a producer or editor might, you know, think of a story in their head and, and how that should sound, but may, perhaps they're not in the field reporting that story and not really giving a sense of it. Uh, or, you know, we can maybe relate this to diversity where, you know, people aren't as familiar with a, with a certain community uh, or culture and not being able to, to really understand that perspective. So when you do get that diversity in across the the board and uh, up and down in an organization like a big media organization i think that really reflects uh, in the stories that are being told and, and and in the angles the cbc has done a very good job uh, and of course they they you know i speak from experience having worked there for many many years they uh, sometimes go above and beyond on the surface. It seems it seems great, but you know I think there is a, a long, long way to go. And it, particularly if we look at the the ownership of newspapers and and especially the columnists across Canada, I think there is a lot more that that needs to be done. And, and certainly this is a conversation that is is important, especially as I pointed out at the start that when you have such a diverse place, that needs to be really uh, reflected in the media. And uh, is it uh, okay to leave it to, to the media and those who are in power to, to sort that out. I'm not so sure it always works uh, that well to us. And Ed, in the UK for, for some time now, there's been a similar discussion that's focused on, I suppose, which socioeconomic group you come from if you're working in a newsroom, that many senior newsroom positions tend to be filled by people who come from a, a certain economic echelon, if I can put it that way. And then that in turn, so the argument goes, skews how stories are reported or even which stories are covered in the first place, that is a series of stories that's been covered for several years in the UK by this stage. But has much changed, do you think, in diversing the kind of viewpoints and, uh, and voices in the UK's newsrooms in that regard, would you say? I think it's a really complex question to unpick. I mean, just look at the debates that were had in the US shifting geography for a moment, you know, during the last the election that that voted Trump into power back in 2016, the fact that the media was basically accused of not uh, covering or really being awake to what was happening in the middle of the country, you know, uh, urban cities uh, with the producers of journalists, you know, who work for big uh, papers like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the LA Times, etc, etc. And were they really aware of what was happening? And did they help contribute to Trump coming to power? That's another sort of elite question from a, a different sort of urban rural angle. So there, there are definitely all these things at play. And certainly in the UK, again, it's very complex, this idea of class and privilege 
it, it, it is it is very difficult and tricky and uh you know i think there have been some attempts to change um i know for example um sky uh in the uk recently announced um it was basically starting uh, a placement program for underrepresented groups uh to to go across its stable of of different uh sky channels 18 placements um i mean that's a small step uh, but I guess it's a step in the right direction. You know, you know, the BBC uh, is accused of having too many people that have sort of plummy public school accents. Uh, and, and, and it's something sort of having been away from the BBC and not listened to it so much when I was in um, the US. Uh, I can really hear in the, in the sort of accents of some of those people who are on the radio stations on BBC Radio 4 you could argue that some of the same issues affect uh, public radio uh, in the US I mean my own personal experience is that you know my first job in journalism that I got offered was for a local newspaper back in the I mean obviously it was a while ago showing my age a few decades ago I can't remember how long ago it was now but a while ago it was paying 12,000 pounds a year now you have to have a certain amount of support uh from you don't necessarily have to have gone to private school obviously but it's not easy for someone to like not live at home and earn that sort of money so there are all these uh issues that need addressing if uh you know if it's going to become a fairer and more equitable profession and then you've got just to finish very quickly the fact that there's market pressure the fact that a lot of these certainly these smaller publications aren't doing as well as they used to so how do you fund it a secret would be to pay people better to have better programs to have more accessibility but when you have some corners of the uk media industry struggling it seems hard to see how that could change well finally here on the late edition it is one of the most visited tourist attractions in the world the unesco listed temple complex at angkor wat in cambodia well a proposed attempt to boost the number of those making their pilgrimage to the site via a huge new theme park nearby has been rejected and monocle's culture editor chiara ramella had more for us on the story on today's edition of the briefing So I have struggled to find specific information on the particular attractions as part of the theme park, but I have said that it was pitched as Angkor Lake of Wonder. So I don't know if maybe it was, I don't know, floating boats on said Lake of Wonder. This proposal was rejected and UNESCO is pleased about that. Though I have to say that somewhat worryingly, there are discussions about whether it will just have to be rethought in scale and it's not completely off the table yet. So maybe it won't be humongous, but there might still be something on the horizon. Chiara Rimella there on the so far failed attempt to build a theme park near Cambodia's World Heritage Site of Angkor Wat. Ed, I remember a good few years ago, the first time I came to Canada and I put my tourist hat firmly on and uh, visited Niagara Falls for the first time. And I obviously hadn't read the guidebooks 
thoroughly enough at that time because I pretty naively imagined that Niagara Falls was this great natural wonder, of course, but set in this vast, unspoiled natural landscape. But it is, in fact, nestled next to this pretty extensive, kitschy wonderland of casinos and amusement arcades that in a normal time bring in millions of people in their own right to Niagara Falls every year on whichever side of the US-Canada border you're on. Is it important, do you think, when you have got a, a wonder on your hands, if I can put it that way, to know where and how to draw the line, I suppose, how to bring people in, but also how to let the said wonder speak for itself? Yeah, I, I never actually made it to the Falls, but I did travel nearby, and it is spectacularly seedy, isn't it, <laughs> in, in the surrounding area. Um, look, obviously, as a purist and someone who uh, appreciates uh, natural wonders, you would say, yes, look, it would be great if none of these uh, these amazing things that we go and see were sort of corrupted and spoiled. The reality is that, you know, we live in capitalist societies and the rules of the market uh, tend to dominate and it, it, it's fairly normal that things would spring up in the vicinity of something that attracts millions of visitors a year, uh, whether it's a casino or, or, or someone selling T-shirts. I was here and I just got sprayed <laughs> by the fools. I didn't have time to think of a better uh, gag for the t-shirt but there you go um and and also you know look uh it, it, it's as micro as you know uh I, I sometimes visit the city of verona not so far from here in milan and you know there's a beautiful square there called piazza erbe and you know it used to just ha- be full of vegetable fruit and vegetable sellers and now it's it's just full of especially you know in the summer when people visit it's full of people trying to sell tourist hat uh to visitors i think it's normal that people want to make money out of these things would i like to live in a world where that wasn't the case of course I appeared on the late edition and all I got was this lousy t-shirt ad. That could possibly <laughs> there be we go. a tagline for your burgeoning tourist business. And Daniel, Now you'll... available on monocle.com. <laughs> exactly. And Daniel, you'll know that, that Canada's largest theme park, Canada's Wonderland, evocatively titled, is playing a different role in Canada's national life at the moment. It's been turned into one of the largest mass vaccination centres in the country. And I suppose just to bring today's show full circle to where we began it's had to close temporarily because of a lack of vaccine doses available at the moment but japan for one has a brand new theme park as is reported in the monocle minute today which has opened its doors where it's those traditional thrills and spills that we associate with amusement parks solely that are on offer there yeah, lucky for those uh, people that might get to, to go there. I don't know how uh, wide the access is in Japan. They're also enjoying uh, the cherry blossom season as well under, I think, some pretty heavy restrictions, seeing some friends there uh, out enjoying that. It's it's a bit different, I think, without, without the tourists. But uh, yeah, it's... Uh, you know these these theme parks i think are are pretty in, important for a lot of places and uh I, I was just thinking as you were talking there off the top about uh building a, an amusement park near uh, Angkor Wat and and i was thinking well why don't you do it the canadian way and just build it next to the the, the highway <laughs> whereas where where i spent my childhood uh, summers at canada's wonderland uh pretty sad sight there now with uh 
a big planned vaccine uh, location with uh, no no jabs to to dole out unfortunately um but yeah, and uh, just finally to set the record straight on Niagara Falls, it's uh, much better on the Canadian side for anyone that does plan <laughs> to go there. And I do feel sorry for you because it's not that great. I always felt bad for the people that uh, arrived in downtown Toronto as well because uh, it, it, it's it's great, but they, they're just walking around on Front Street there and it's not that exciting compared to the rest of the city. So, Tomas, if, you, if you're around, do point people in, in the right direction of some more exciting uh uh, scenery in Toronto. I'll try my best, Daniel. I'll have my own little tourist maps ready to go to hand out to people. So the real sights and sounds of Toronto. Well, Daniel Bache and Ed Stocker, purveyors of a roller coaster ride every time they appear on the late edition. Thanks very much to the two of you for being on the programme today. That is all we have time for, I'm afraid to say, for today's edition of the late edition. Sam Impey edited today's programme in London. A big thank you to her, as always, too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow but in the meantime do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of monocle on design which premiered here on monocle 24 a short while ago i'm tomas lewis here in toronto thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow Music.